that example uh, can say so much more than a couple words, that's for sure. Um, thank you to Mike and Diane for allowing me to pick their brain and to hear, allow you and I to hear their heart. And so uh, they, they provide a great example for us, and certainly the topic this morning um, certainly sets the table well for that discussion. Um, let's just uh, turn to Lord in prayer before we do anything. Father, thank you for your work in our life. As we've saying, we, we bless you. Um, you've been so good to us. And Lord, that you've brought us here this morning. We're not here by accident. You have something this morning you want to say to us. And whether we've been a Christian for 40 years or four minutes, um, Lord, you want to speak to us. So please give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8. I want to read a portion of this chapter, and it is an incredible chapter. Um, it's an incredible account, really challenging account, but very insightful. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you... But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. Now, this is an important context a little bit about 2 Corinthians 8. He's involved in collecting money, Paul is, for a struggling congregation in Jerusalem. They're hurting. They're hurting people. To a certain degree, they're desperate people. And as Paul goes through these regions, he announces this need. And interesting enough, Macedonia was already this economically depressed area. And Paul goes into this economically depressed area and says, you have brothers and sisters in great need back in Jerusalem. And these people, it would be like going to a group of people on welfare and saying, you who are on welfare here, I want you to help those on welfare over here. That would be a strange appeal. That's kind of what was going on. Paul was presenting a need, and these financially deprived Macedonians were so concerned about their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who did not have sufficient resources to make ends meet that they gave. They really gave as we read this account. And let's look at how these believers, because they experience something that is really a missing piece, I think, in a lot of Christians' lives. It's something we either forget or we didn't make a connection to. You see, they developed and modeled for us this joy of giving. Now, when I talk about giving and stewardship, I'm trying to make sure we don't automatically default to one issue, money, because you're totally missing the big picture. Mike and Diane shared, that's a life of stewardship. They stewarded energy, time, resources, all those things they invested. It wasn't just one gift. 
And so as we go through this, I want you to think, and it's, this is a great model because they model more than just resources here, of stewarding and the joy of giving of ourselves, of our time, of our talents, all of those things across the board. Let's, let's learn how they developed this joy. First of all, they gave anonymously. Look at verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the, in the churches of Macedonia. We don't know anything more than the churches of Macedonia. We don't know Bob's name, Judy's name. We don't know any names. It's just the Macedonian churches. No individuals highlighted, no statues erected. It's a great proof of anonymity. Just, just the Macedonian churches. That, that's who gave. I was reminded of Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, which is like charity, when you give to a need, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And so Jesus had laid out that kind of that mindset of giving anonymously. And, and think of the result of that. If someone has given you a gift anonymously, you didn't know who it was. You had no recourse but to thank who? God. Right? There, you didn't know who this was attached to, so the only thing you could do is say, God, thanks, and bless whoever you use to give this to us. That's what you're left with. That's a good thing, that God gets the praise for it. And there are practical advantages giving anonymously. Obviously, God's honored because he's the real giver. Needs are met. And givers are enriched because God knows who blesses and why they bless. Give anonymously. There's a poem I like, and I've read it periodically throughout my life. It's incredibly challenging. Uh, it's by Ruth Harm Calkins, and she, it's called I Wonder. And, and, and listen to what she writes. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervescence when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? Boy, isn't that challenging? You see, when we practice the art of unselfish living, we prefer to give anonymously. It's a great model for us, a great challenge for us. They not only gave anonymously in the sense that we don't know individuals, it was just the churches, they also gave generously. Look at verse 2. That in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Verse 2 indicates the Macedonian churches were just passing through this special time of tribulation. And so they've come through this difficult, challenging time of tribulation. Add to that extreme poverty, and you have every reason not to give. They had every reason not to give, much less give generously. But it did not diminish this abundance of joy and desire they had to give. Now, as I even speak this and study this, I thought, okay, there could be somebody out there with <coughs> legitimate thought, maybe persons, plural, 
who said, that's kind of, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, if, if you have needs and, and things, and you're, you're facing a lot of turmoil and, and you have poverty going on, that is a ridiculous thing to do, to give that way. I mean, it would be ideal. You'd like to say, well, of course I'd like to give, but I mean, I got my own needs. I got my own stuff going on. That's ridiculous. Actually, ridiculous might not be the right word. Maybe hilarious would be a better word. And that's not my word. It's the Bible's word. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That, that word cheerful in English, the Greek word is hilarious, which we get our word, hilarious. Literally, the verse says, for the hilarious giver, God prizes. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I mean, God looks at that type of giving when we're facing tribulation and we're having financial needs and we look at the checkbook and there's not a lot there. God says when we give out of that, that's hilarious. I prize that kind of giving. That's the kind of giving, whether it's your time, whether it's your energy, you get to the end of a day and your dog tired and the phone rings, you know what? I got a little more for my brother or sister. And out you go. You pray over them and bless them. Or whatever the circumstances would be, God prizes the hilarious givers. And they gave generously. A happy, generous spirit takes the grind out of giving. No doubt about it. It's been my observation in our community as commitment in our society has waned. It's no coincidence, so has joy. You see, when we commit and give of ourselves generously, God blesses that. It's, it's an enriching in our life. It's like you can't outgive God. He says, I'm going to bless that type of attitude. I'm going to bless that type of spirit. And he does. But what happens when we don't commit that way? What happens when we don't give of ourselves in our life? We lose something. Joy is one of them. It's the way God's wired us. It's the way he, he's created us, that when we give and act like God, for God so loved the world he gave, that's how God loves, he gives. And when we model that, there's something enriching in our life. And maybe if you look at your life, you say, I'm not, I don't have a whole lot of joy going on. I mean, that might be one thing for you to stop and think right now. Do I give of my time freely or am I a miser? Do I give of my energy? Do I give of my talents, my resources? My good way to evaluate our life sometimes. It's helpful. Proverbs 22.9, a generous man or woman will himself be blessed. It's right there in the scriptures. Proverbs 22, 9, generous man will himself be blessed. And that idea of blessed has this idea of satisfied, joy. Now, verse 2 is interesting, back to 2 Corinthians 8. It says that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't just two people. It was this whole church was marked by with a generous spirit. Man, when a church gets marked by having a generous spirit, there's a corporate witness, unmatched. And it's rich because we read it right here. They're a great model for us. And not only do they give according to their ability, they give even beyond their ability is what we're told. Do you remember, can you remember a time in your life when you gave more than you should have, logically speaking? 
I mean, logically, it didn't make sense. Matter of fact, if you were honest, it scared yourself a little bit. You ever did that before? Wasn't it great? And wasn't it great when you gave the gift? You're like, oh, man, I think I, went, I gave too much. But wasn't there a party that went, oh, yeah, this is good. This is good. It felt good to be stretched. It felt good to give beyond what really, logically speaking, normal person would have. That's what it means to be generous. It's what the Macedonian believers modeled. What do you and I model? Because in reality, there's three levels of giving, whether it be our time, our energy, our talents. It's less than our ability. We can give according to our ability, or we can give beyond our ability. These Macedonian Christians, they were beyond their ability. That's the category they were in. They stand as a great model for us. Mike and Diane would have fit well with that Macedonian community. Um, they, they really, I think, represent well a Macedonian spirit. And to be honest, I think we miss the adventure of seeing God provide when we've really stretched ourselves in giving. And giving our best is a good plan. And to be sure, sacrificial giving appears to be unreasonable at times, but not in God's economy. I wonder, how do young Christians in our churches learn how to give? They look at the more mature Christians, right? Aren't, aren't you guys the models if you're a little older? Of course, we should be, right? Our parents, kids look at, at, at the little Larson kids will grow up and they're going to look at the adults and we're going to model for them some things. And, um, and so it's important for us, well, if I can put myself in that category, it's important for you mature Christians uh, to cast out a vision for giving to our younger, younger ones in our congregation. In 2 Chronicles 24, there's a great little example. 2 Chronicles 24, young jo- Joash um, has become king. Matter of fact, he was seven years old. Anyone a little nervous at this point about a seven-year-old king? Good night. Okay. Um, But Joash, we're told, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This little guy, God was using him. And verse 4 tells us, now it came about after this, that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. Pick it up in verse 8. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside by the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring, in, to bring to the Lord the levy fixed by Moses, a servant of God on Israel in the wilderness. And all the officers, look at this, verse 10, and all the people rejoiced. There's not a begrudging one mention. They rejoiced and brought in their levies and dropped them into the chest until they had finished. It, it's almost implied that they didn't just give the levy. They rejoiced in giving, and the odds are pretty good they probably gave more. Verse 11, and it came about whenever the chest was brought into the king's officer by the Levites, and when they saw that there was much money, then the king's scribe and the chief priest officers would come, empty the chest, take it and return it to its place. This they did daily and collected much money. Okay, so you see what's happening. They got this chest out there. They're saying, hey, drop the money in here because we got to restore the temple. Okay. People would give, fill it up, they'd bring it in, empty, say, geez, we gotta, gotta, people keep giving, we've got to bring it back out. And they keep having to do this every day. People kept giving. If you read the rest of the chapter, 
Verse, verse 12 goes on, And the king and Jehoiada gave it to all those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord. They hired masons, carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. And it goes on to say that they had an abundance. But what really struck me about this is the way the people gave. They rejoiced that they were able to give. The givers in that part of the community of faith, I think, recognized the privilege. They recognized that they were investing in something bigger than they were, the kingdom of God. There's joy in being a steward, in being generous. Verses 3 through 4 back in 2 Corinthians 8 also tell us how they developed the joy of a steward as they gave voluntarily. No one had to twist their arms. No one had to guilt them. Matter of fact, look at the language of verse 3 and 4. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of, look at this, their own accord. It was their own personal decision to give. And they, boy, did they ever give. Verse 4, they begged us with much entreaty for the favor of participation and support of the saints. Did you see that? They begged us. It almost implies, Paul says, guys, you're facing enough hard times. Be careful. Or others, they talk to each other. Man, you, you know, you got groceries coming next week. You better be careful. Careful how much you give. And they begged, please, please let us give. There's something different about that type of spirit. They begged to be able to participate. Look at the language. They gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. And they begged, they urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which I read, says we're to give not reluctantly or under compulsion. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, through, verse 2 through 3 says, Shepherds are to serve as overseers, not because they must, but because they're willing. And this is the joy of a steward, is we give voluntarily. We shouldn't have to twist each other's arms to serve, to give just be out of a heart that's generous and loves and sees the privilege of being able to serve God. The greatest example is found in John 3.16. I found this uh, writing before, so I can't claim it. God is the greatest giver. He so loved was the greatest motive. The world was the greatest need. That he gave, that was the greatest act. His only son, the greatest gift. That whosoever, the greatest invitation. Believes in him, the greatest opportunity, should not perish, the greatest deliverance, but have eternal life. That's the greatest joy. We're designed by God to give and to share. And it takes away from us this tendency to become isolated and to become indifferent. And Jesus is our perfect example. Now, as we consider about giving voluntarily, there's some real practical things you and I face as Christians. And one is this whole issue of a tithe. Now, for some people, that's a swear word. <laughs> they don't want to hear about it because that might mean they have to give something or get serious. And, uh, but what does the Bible really talk about a tithe? It is a voluntary gift. It's a voluntary way we honor God. A tithe literally means tenth. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege we have to worship and acknowledge our faith and trust in God as our provider. And I believe one of the purposes of a tithe is to help and create and cultivate a generous, Christ-like spirit. That's one of the reasons that we've maintained passing 
the little plate around because we believe tithing and giving is an act of worship. And if we say we've gone to a worship service, wouldn't it stand to reason that we would worship in our giving? And so we hope that you have that spirit, whether you give here or in other ways. That it's not just dropping something in the plate, but you're worshiping and saying, God, this is yours anyways. Well, I'm going to give it back to you as an act of worship. And I hope that you're able to give that way. Because that's really what tithing is meant to be, an act of worship. Malachi 3, Proverbs 3, 9, Hebrews 7, in a sense, Matthew 22 and Nehemiah all address this privilege, this form of worship called tithing, which is a voluntary choosing to honor and obey God. It's this voluntary choosing to honor and obey God. The model in the scripture seems to be 10% to the local church, by the way, 10% being the basement, not the ceiling, and other offerings above and beyond that to whether it be parachurch ministries or personal missionaries you have. And so that seems to be the pattern, a tithe and then separate offerings are given. But it's to be voluntary as an act of worship in that sense. And I wonder, why wouldn't we want to tithe considering God's promises on the subject? Uh, he promises to bless it. It promises to further his kingdom. Why would we not want to honor our God that way? Without tithing, to be honest, you're on your own. Good luck. I mean, God's going to say, you're not going to honor me with, your, with the finances? Okay, you're on your own. Apparently you can do it yourself. But you see, we sanctify our finances through our tithe. What, what I mean by that is when we set apart and honor God with our tithe, we lay before him all the rest of it and say, it's yours. Sanctify it, use it, direct it wherever you would want it to go. We acknowledge him in a tangible way as our owner. Consider Bill and Donna in their situation. They're in their mid-30s. Young, uh, we would call them pretty much generally a young couple. Bill is a steady job, and, but you know, maybe you can relate, there's always too much month left at the end of their money. Bill and Donna sincerely intend to give what's left at the end of the month. But between house payments, bills, sticking a little into savings, there's never anything left. They feel bad. But what can they do when they're out of money? That's Bill and Donna's situation, but there's a problem here. Bill and Donna don't understand first fruits, don't understand the principle of Scripture, which says we are to give the first 10%. They didn't give to the Lord off the top. Instead, they gave him what's left or not left. They don't realize that the tithe belongs to God. And there's a word for taking money that doesn't belong to them. Stealing. Malachi called it, last book of the Old Testament, robbing God. Not giving to God what is due him. Think of Joan's situation. She's a 22-year-old. She's just finishing college. Her 30-hour-a-week job pays just over minimum, minimum wage. She earns $800 a month. Now, Joan's parents still provide room and board. But she has to take care of her tuition, her books, and other expenses. Joan says, I can't afford to give. I'm barely making it now. If I gave a tithe, it would be $80 a month. I'd probably have to drop out of school. I'd like to give. I just can't. Joan's in a tough situation, but there's a problem here. Joan's not only robbing God, she's robbing herself of an opportunity to grow in faith 
Because certainly if God could help her to get by on 800, you think 720 is hard for him? <laughs> no. It becomes a faith issue in Joan's life. Will she choose to honor God? And so guilting people into this doesn't help. God wants to bring us to a place where we voluntarily seek to honor him by giving the church in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 8 is a great model. They gave voluntarily. They won't, weren't coerced, guilted. They had the need. God was so working in their life that they gave. And I was also struck with verse 5, they gave personally. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Sometimes it's easier to write a check than to give of ourselves. Paul was saying we went with the need, and not only did they help meet the need resource-wise, but they really gave of themselves, Paul says to us. They availed to us themselves. Their lives could be their homes. He probably has a lot of different things in mind there. Personal involvement is essential. And it usually involves adapting our ways, our schedules, sometimes to fit into other people's needs. You see, there's much more to giving ourselves to the Lord and to others than just giving verbal statements. One author says, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes little. To give and to commit daily in this matter it can be costly. But like Mike and Diane shared, there's great joy that many will miss out on because they have not committed to give personally. Leads to some questions. Are you serious about being a close follower of Jesus? Do you think of others to the extent that self-denial is becoming a rule rather than the exception in your life? And is your walk with Christ the daily thing reflected by a generous spirit? I'd like to close quickly here with four simple encouragements to help you and I, I think, move us towards experiencing more of what it, it means to be a joyful steward. One is, and we sang it, that song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, is based on Psalm 103. Reflect on God's gifts to you. And if you need help, read Psalm 103. In case you can't conjure up anything, he's been good to you. He's been good to you and I. Do you realize that you and I in this room, every one of us, has more than probably 85% in our world? He's been good to us. Reflect on his good gifts to you. Giving is a response to the goodness of God. He is a good, good father, as we sing. Number two, remind yourself often of God's promises about generosity. Deep down, I believe Christ's followers really do want to release and to be givers. But they have a hard time to just start giving, to just start that process. It's worth it to start. Let it happen. Those who reap bountifully are those who sowed bountifully. There's greater joy in seeing God use your gifts and talents and time than you can imagine. He'll bless that. Remind yourself often of God's promises about generosity. Number three, examine your heart. Nobody can do this but you. Nobody else can open the private vault of your heart and say, am I really committed? My time, my talents, the resources I have. Have I really committed it to God and let him direct it where he wants? Do I really believe God loves when I give generously? Do I really believe that? Is my giving, whatever it would be, at least proportionate to my income? 
And if someone else knew the level of my commitment to my giving of my time, my resources, my talents, would I be a model to follow? Some of them are tough questions, but they're important we, you and I ask them. And finally, do I freely give of myself? Ask God to help you become a better giver, to live more with open hands and open heart. And I believe that we're a church that, by God's grace, we do it, you guys do it well. Let's do it better. Um, let's continue to model that uh, for our community and for the younger generation coming up. And number four, glorify God by being extremely generous in your time, with your talents, with your gifts. There's a u- unique way to apply it. Here's, here's what I want to challenge all of us. I double-dog dare you. Scare yourself a little. Something coming up in the next week or month or something like that. It could be time or something. Scare yourself a little. Give to such a degree you're like, ooh, this is a little over the top. Try it. You, you won't regret it. it. Because God prizes a hilarious giver. There's joy in being a giver. And as Mike Krackelberg said, all we did is just lay our lives down before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the model of these Macedonian Christians. I want to thank you for the model of Mike and Diane. Both challenged me in multiple ways. Maybe I'm not alone. Lord, we do live in a culture that is certainly marked by isolation, individualism, technological advances, unprecedented. It's easy to get caught up in all that, but we lose something. We're losing the joy of giving. The joy of committing to investing in lives and looking out for other people. And just the joy of acting like you did when you walked this earth. And so, God, I pray that you would develop in us that Macedonian spirit, that giving, that generous lifestyle that was modeled for us. And, Lord, help us in the day-to-day application of what we studied this morning. Might your spirit give us antenna to see opportunities that you would want to use us to invest in. So give us ears to hear. Hearts, God, ready, ready to react and respond. And we know, Lord, as we give and as we live like this, that you're pleased, honored, and worshiped. And we get a part of your building kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray.